Several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter. And I'll tell you what, I am so glad, so glad to finally get out of the studio. It seems like I've been in the studio for just months now. I think with the weather and everything, it's been hard to get out. But today I am out with a great friend of the show, somebody who I deeply respect. It is Brian Talley of Talley Vineyards and Talley Farms. And it's Tally from the Arroyo Grande Valley in the central coast of California. And I wanted to come out here because Brian is such a wealth of information. He runs a very big operation, got a lot going on, and there's some things I wanted to talk about today, and Brian's the perfect guy. Hey, Brian, welcome to Grape Encounters. Well, David, thank you for having me. We are having a Grape Encounter at Tally Vineyards. That's a first, right? I mean, you've been on the show, but first, yeah, first it, time we've been out here at the vineyard. And we're in the Rincon room, right? That's That's what this room is called because it overlooks our Rincon Vineyard, and this is a very historic vineyard. This is where my father started planting our vines back in 1982. Do you know how many people would pay like a hundred bucks just to sit in this room and look out that window? Well, I I, I don't know that. I kind of take it for granted because yeah, uh, you do. I I get to see it all the time. You should just try it. Just say hundred bucks, you can sit in the Rincon room. Maybe you could throw in a bottle of wine. That's right. It'd have to be a cheap bottle though. You have any cheap wines? Uh, not exactly. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, there are two things I wanted to talk about today, Brian, and I'm so glad to have you. One of them is there's just been a lot of discussion about, you know, now that we've got a new administration in Washington, there's so much going on, and some concerns about farm workers and how we're going to get through this period of time when there's a lot of fear that seems to be instilled in people. Maybe maybe I've got that wrong, and we'll get into that in a second. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is a fear that I have. It's a fear of Pinot Noir. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm I'm concerned about both of these things. Yes, I know. And I don't I've seen a therapist on the Pinot thing. It's really it's just a joke, okay? I I joke about it on the show I have for 8 years. And the reason I do is because everybody knows, you know, that's in the industry, the Pinot explosion occurred in the wake of the movie Sideways and Merlot went sideways. Right. And and do you agree with that? Do you agree that that's what the catalyst for Pinot was? 
work? Well, or do, do you think I have that wrong? Um, actually, I think there were a number of factors that were coming together that were aligning before Sideways uh, happened that, that really laid the groundwork for the post-Sideways phenomenon. So perfect storm. Yes. And, and one of those things was the fact that more, more and more people were planting Pinot Noir in areas like this very close to the ocean. We're sitting about seven and a half miles from the ocean right here. And the best Pinot Noir vineyards in California tend to be the ones closest to the ocean. And that's a phenomenon that has occurred over the last 20 years. And so basically the quality of Pinot Noir produced in California had improved dramatically. And then Sideways came along and just really kind of threw gasoline on the fire. And a lot of people, you know, jerked out their Merlot, right? And that was the wrong thing to do for some people because pulling out Merlot and planting Pinot in the same spot doesn't, Not a good idea. doesn't work, right? No, no. I think the problem with Merlot is that uh, Merlot makes wonderful wine in its own right, but it's very site-specific, as is Pinot Noir. And unfortunately, there had been too much Merlot planted in sites that weren't really ideally suited for it, and a lot of poor quality Merlot. I, I would argue that the quality of Merlot that's produced now, there are there's less of it, and it's of better quality than it was before. Sideways. So this is this is my contention, which I've I've voiced many times on the show, that I think that sideways. A lot of people say sideways was the best thing that happened to Pinot. I say sideways was the best thing that happened to Merlot because the bad Merlot was pulled out. The people who were making great Merlot continued to do that. And the people who didn't quite have their Merlot dialed in got their game together. And so we got a lot of great Merlot, which takes us to Pinot because everybody and their brothers started planting Pinot. And a lot of people who have no business being in the Pinot business were planting Pinot. Hence my Pinot aversion because there's a lot of junky Pinot out there. Well, and, and I will admit that that, that is true. And so um, I, I think if you're going to buy Pinot Noir, you need to pay a lot of attention to where it comes from and, and who makes it. And I would argue that right now, the very best Pinot Noir that has ever been produced in California is, is being produced at this time. But it's a small subset of the total amount of Pinot Noir that's available. All right. So I want to get into Pinot, how to shop for Pinot. And, and I think it's also very important to point out the fact that not all Pinots uh, from bottle to bottle, from vineyard to vineyard, vary immensely. There's a huge variation. And it's like saying, it's like, it's like you know, compare it to rice, you know. You might say you love rice, but then it's like, well, what do you like? Brown rice? Do you like basmati rice? Do you like jasmine rice? And, you know, there's just so many variations on Pinot. Mm -hmm. So how do you dial it in? Because, you know, when I say I don't like Pinot, what I'm really saying is there are certain styles of Pinot I don't like. Right. And there are certain styles that I do like. And I happen to really love the classic Burgundian style Pinots. I love Pinot from France. Mm. Well, one thing I will tell you about Pinot Noir is it's widely considered to be the most expressive grape of the place it's grown. And so you need to pay a lot of attention to the place it's grown. The other thing you, you want to really pay attention to is the producer, because there are different styles and different approaches to, to the production of Pinot Noir, um, most notably how ripe the grapes are at harvest and how much oak is, is used in, in the production of the wine. Okay, so break that down for us. I walk into a store where they sell wine and I'm looking at 40 different Pinots. I'm not from California and I'm struggling at this mm -hmm. point in time. What do I do? And you said you got to be very careful about where it's grown. So 
you know, what are the first steps for the consumer? Let's assume there's nobody there to help me. Oh, well, that's going to make it a little bit harder. <laughs> well, the first thing, David, is especially when you buy Pinot Noir, and we're talking about handcrafted artisan wines here, I really recommend shopping in an independent retail wine shop where there is someone there to help you. And I'll take you through it as if I was the person helping you. The first thing I'm going to ask you is, what sorts of flavors do you like? Do you like more red fruit flavors like raspberry, strawberry, uh, those kinds of flavors? Or do you like dark fruit, black fruits, uh, ripe blackberry, maybe even um, pushing into fig kinds of flavors? Can I answer the questions while we're doing this, by the yes, way? Yeah, because, please do. because I think it'd be fun. You know, it'd be interesting to see where you guide me. So between black fruit and red fruit, what would you say? Black fruit. Okay. So since you like black fruit, you're going to like a riper style of Pinot Noir. Is it your sense, and since I'm, I know that you're a fairly sophisticated consumer, do you like new French oak characteristics in terms of maybe roasted notes or vanilla kinds of flavors? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, that pushes me, I guess, for a recommendation for you towards uh, something probably from the Russian River Valley, where there are certain producers there, probably most notably William Selium, that has really developed a signature style, or Mary Edwards, it's really centered around that riper, a little bit more okay, oaky this style. Is, okay, this is so amazing, because when I get into my Pinot rants sometimes, I often say that the one exception that I always know I can count on are Russian River Valley Pinots for me, mm -hmm. but I never really thought about why until now. Right. That is amazing. You're amazing, man. That's great. Well, thank you for that, David. Now, here's another thing. I love Russian River Pinots. I also tend to like the Pinots that come out of Monterey. Mm -hmm. Is there a similarity there? What is it that's common between those two? Well, I think it comes down to a stylistic decision that people are making. And as I think about some of the iconic producers from the Santa Lucia Highlands, which is really right, the yeah. most noted area in, in Monterey County, people like Pizzoni or Gary Francioni, who makes the Roar brand. Again, they're picking in that riper style, and they're using a little bit more uh, new French And oak. you just mentioned two wines that I love. Well, there you go. Is that crazy? You are amazing. Well, and you've given me enough information to uh, really kind of dial it in. Ladies and gentlemen, like. this is going to be my last show on Grape Encounters. Next week, it'll be Brian Talley taking over the microphone from here on out. You're a genius, Brian. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> it's Brian Talley, and it is Talley Vineyards. They are on the central coast of California really easy for you to find their wines. You can get their wines. If you can't find their wines at your local retailer, you can just go online and you can buy them from Tally Vineyards, assuming you're not... Tallyvineyards.com. Yeah, assuming you're not in some state that is run by Gestapo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we don't sell much wine in those days. There are a couple of those. All right, hey, we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters and my very special guest, Brian Tally, in just a moment. So hang with us. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in the quaint, friendly, and historic town of Atascadero, California. Hello, Mr. Wilson. Welcome! Welcome to the show. Welcome! Don't bother adjusting the knobs on your radio. It's a special transmission. Direct to your head. And now, here's the guy who went from hipster to sipster, David Wilson. No, 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 Mr. Wilson. Welcome! This isn't where you should be. Welcome! 
with Grape Encounters Radio and sitting right now in the Rincon Room at Tally Vineyards on the central coast of California. And I'm sitting with our good friend, Brian Tally. We're talking Pinot right now. Well, and it's my favorite topic. So I know I'm it's glad your favorite topic. And, and you know what? And the, the truth is I'm sitting here and I'm enjoying some Tally Vineyard. I want to say Tally Farms all the time because you're not just a wine guy. You're a farmer. Well, man. and actually that's an important point. Tally Vineyard sits right in the middle of a farm. And that's something that really influences everything that we do. And that's actually really critical with Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, more than any other variety, really expresses its place. You had made a comment before that there's really a wide variation in, in in the styles of Pinot Noir that one tastes, and that's a reason for it. I guess a critical issue is you have to be in a cool enough place for the grape to really retain its natural acidity. That's why the best Pinot Noirs in California tend to be produced very close to the ocean. So do you have any other places that you can recommend besides California? Well, the Willamette Valley is is the best example in yeah. terms of a, of a significant region where there's a good quantity of world-class Pinot Noir produced. But uh, I think that, you know, we're sitting here. This is coastal San Luis Obispo County. We've been producing Pinot Noir here for 30 years now, and it's just now being discovered. And again, it's part of this trend in California to planting closer and closer to the ocean. And so of our four Pinot Noir vineyards, they range in distance between four and uh, seven miles from the ocean. So would it be safe to say that if somebody was researching Pinot, apart from just trying to hunt down quality vineyards, would it be smart to look at a map? Absolutely. It would. And what would we be looking for on the map? Is it just distance? It's not just that, right? It, it has to do with how the air flows in and out of these valleys, right? The best Pinot Noir in California is produced in these coastal valleys. The other thing we're looking for are classic, well-drained soils, ideally marine sedimentary soils. I find that the best Pinot Noirs tend to have a bit of clay in the soil, which gives them a bit more structure. Those are the attributes that we're looking for. Ideally, a calcareous character, a little bit of limestone in the soil. All right, so you just lost everybody now. Calcareous is basically limestone. And the best Pinot Noirs in the world, which historically came from the coast d'Or in the in the Burgundy region of France are all associated with limestone soils. So if you were shopping Pinots, would it be safe to say that it, when you go from region to region, we were talking a moment ago about the Santa Lucia Highlands, there's also the Santa Rita Hills, which if there was any place that popularized Pinot through the movie Sideways, that was it because that's where the movie was set. So you've got Santa Rita Hills, Santa Lucia Highlands, you've got the Russian River Valley, you've got the Central Coast here and a few other places. Could I sit down with you and pour a Pinot from each of those regions and would you do a pretty good job of sorting them out? In it, blind, could you do that? Not as well as I would like. It's Warren, doable, right? It is, absolutely. And very, very good tasters, tasters who are better than I can do that. But so much of Pinot Noir in the flavors that you get are really dictated by harvest decisions. And one of the most important decisions as, as a Pinot Noir wine grower that I have to make is how ripe I would like the grapes to be. In my opinion, the riper the grapes, the more you push into those kinds of black fruits, the more you move away from the delicacy and the finesse that's really the hallmark mark of Pinot Noir. I'm looking at this Pinot now, and I'm really enjoying this Pinot. I'm not jerking well, your you. chain, honestly. You know I wouldn't lie to you about that, right? Well, thank you, David. I love this wine. This is a delicious wine, and it's your East Rincon Vineyards. What year is this, by the way? 2014. It's 2014. 
And this is really a delicious wine. Now, I wouldn't say, you know, a lot of Pinots, I hold them up to the light. I can see through them. This is a little denser right. than a lot of the Pinots that you have out there. But I, I, do, say I this do, is, do think it's pretty elegant, though. It, it is. This is sort of a medium plus in terms of color. One of the characteristics of the Arroyo Grande Valley is it does tend to produce darker colored Pinot Noir. You know, the other thing about this wine that is distinctive is the structure and the mineral aspect. Much California Pinot Noir is very fruit-driven, fruit-focused, to the point where it lacks the structure to really pair well with red meat, especially. This is a wine that will go well with lamb, works very well with Santa Maria-style barbecue, which is one of the uh, signature dishes of this You know, your, your face is lighting up, and I know why your face is lighting up. I'm just going to spill a little information out there to listeners. You just published a cookbook. I did. Hand me that book over there. I got to see this. It's it is, called Our it, California Table. I didn't mean to even talk about this, but I do want to talk about it. You just came out with a cookbook, Our California Table. And it's really interesting because it's not just a cookbook. It's a history of your family and the farming business. It is. And, and, and it's it also, talks about wine pairing and your wines. And there's an abundance here. What I love about this is this is not just a story of food. It's a story of your life. And you live a really good life. Well, thank you, David. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it brought me a, me a lot of pleasure to write the book. And there's a whole chapter in the book about Pinot Noir, really touching on some of the issues that we're talking about today. The other point I'll make about Pinot Noir is that it is the most versatile red wine with a variety of foods. So I, I was just going to say that it's one of the safe bets. You know, people often ask me, I'm going to a dinner party. What's a good wine to take? Pinot is often a safe bet generally is. Right. You know, it's more, I didn't want to say utilitarian, but it's universal. That's it. Right. Yeah. You know, and at this point, for a really world-class example of, of California Pinot Noir, you're going to want to spend 30 or $35 to get, you know, a true artisan expression of the grape. Pinot Noir is not cheap. It it's, is not. It's one of the most expensive wines out there. You know, good Pinot, good Cabernet, expensive. Right. But why is it that Pinot is so pricey? Because Pinot Noir, we get very low yields in our vineyards, and that's one of the attributes of, again, world-class Pinot Noir associated with much lower yields, and that really dictates the bottle price. Right. We're going to come back, and we're going to change the subject. But before we do that, I did have one last Pinot question, and that is on the subject of funk, okay? Mm-hmm. There is that funk that you often smell on Pinot. My good friend, uh, Michael Jordan, the master psalm, mm-hmm. uh, refers to it as uh, the forest floor. Right. Okay? And that's something I don't love. Mm-hmm. I don't love that. Where's that coming from, and how do I avoid that? Because I think that's a characteristic that that is an acquired taste. Well, in the funk that you talk about, I make a distinction between true earth kinds of characteristics, which in this wine, we're tasting a bit of minerality. That's actually generated yes. by the, the soil conditions. The funk I think you're talking about is actually spoilage that's occurring within the winery. It could be uh, Britannomyces or some other spoilage organism. I don't know. I put my nose into a glass of Pinot and I smell that rotting leaves. And it's not mm-hmm. a bad smell exactly because, right. you know, it's a very natural smell, but it's got this sort of funkiness to it. So you think it shouldn't be there? Well, I would have to smell the wine that you're talking about. Again, there's a distinction to me between the flavors that I associate with the actual earth versus spoilage organisms that some people find very appealing. I'm going to bring some Pinots over for you to smell. Sort of reminds me of, though, when my mom would pull some meat out of the refrigerator and go, smell this and tell me if this is okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Smell this Pinot. And then let me know if I'm going to drink it. Hey, we're talking to Brian Talley. He runs Talley Farms 
out here in Tally Vineyards on the Central Coast. Absolutely breathtaking property and absolutely take your breath away wines. He is a master. You and your team are masters. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to be back with more Grape Encounters. And we're going to talk about the team in just a second when we return from Tally Vineyards on the Central Coast of California with Brian Tally. Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. Going out to one country. Ain't no place I'd rather be. It's wine country for me. And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio, coming to you from Tally Vineyards this week, out on the central coast of California. And my guest, Brian Talley, who is now author, Brian Talley. You've got this great cookbook you just came out with. Yeah, it's called Our California Table. I tell you what, I'm taking this home. Well, and you I'm, are. No, I am. I'm, I'm stealing it from you or I buy it from you or whatever. But the thing is, is that I want to make some of these recipes here. And I want to also see how easy your recipes are to follow because that's the art of writing a good cookbook. Who advised you on how, uh, how, to, how to write a recipe? Because that's hard to do. Well, I looked at a lot of other recipes. I've been a cookbook fan for a long Long time, but Bob Morris, who really put the whole project together, he hooked me up with an editor who helped to edit the recipes, and then I worked with a copy editor that helped me with a lot of the writing. There's a recipe in here, and it just says pizza. There's four different kinds of pizza. Oh, I see. So you get four different kinds, okay? This yep. looks delicious, by the way. Do you love to just knead the dough? I do. I, I kneading dough too. is actually a thing that brings me pleasure. Reminds me of that old BG song, I Need You, or is that, <laughs> was that America? I can't remember. Can you play that? In the background, guys. I need you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's change gears here. We were talking about Pinot the last two segments. By the way, I appreciate that. That was really a good dissection of the topic. So well, very happy good. to share. It's an important topic for me. Well, I guess it would be. How many different Pinots do you make? Six to a eight, bottle. depending on the vintage. Yeah. Pinot's your main varietal, right? Uh, we are. We were the first producers of Pinot Noir right here in the Arroyo Grande Valley. It, explain this. Where there is good Pinot, there is generally good Chardonnay. Uh, generally, because both of these varieties thrive in these very cool coastal valleys. And so that, um, often, like in our vineyards, they're planted right next to one another. What's a deal with Chardonnay right now? We've seen Chardonnay going through a massive amount of changes in the past, I'm going to say like 10 years. It went from so oaky that you felt like you were chewing on a two by four. Then there was revolt mm -hmm. and it went to no oak. And now it seems like people are kind of coming out with three different Chardonnays a lot of the time that are heavy oak, mild oak, and no oak. Well, in our case, we make a no oak and we make a very moderate level of French oak. And it's really in keeping with our style, which is very much an old world style that basically embraces wines that taste like the grapes. And Chardonnay, if it's grown in the right place, doesn't need a lot of oak. Okay, so this is way delicious. This is the, your Rincon Vineyard Chardonnay. I got it here in my glass. Because I said, I'm not doing this interview without wine, Brian. There's well, no way. And nor should you. So um, this is actually our Rincon Vineyard Chardonnay from a, a section of the vineyard that my father planted back in 1984. It's growing on its own roots. It's a Wente selection, which means very small buried, small clusters. And it has the classic... And now, by the way, the Wente family yeah. up north in Livermore. Right. Right. And they were responsible for bringing in this particular clone. 
That's correct. And most closely associated with the Corton Charlemagne vineyard in the Burgundy region of France, a very highly regarded Chardonnay have you, vineyard. Have you been there? I have been there. You have. I've been to Burgundy. I, I do lots of research and development for my job. That's it. You know what? You, somebody's got to do that, right? You well, can't do this right if you, if you don't do that, go and to it, Burgundy. It, it's, it sounds a little funny, but the thing is our wines are very much framed on that classic uh, Burgundian style. And so it was important for me early in my career to taste a lot of these benchmarks. I think it's very important important for listeners. You know, if you love Chardonnay, if you love Pinot, you should really remember that these grapes, you're going to find them in France under different names. Right. And it's not going to be called Chardonnay there. Okay. So go find yourself a really lovely white Burgundy. Right. And it's going to be named after the village where the grapes are grown. Right. Or the vineyard where the grapes are planted. So if you look on our bottles, for instance, the most prominent name on these single vineyard bottlings is actually the name of the vineyard. That's why it says Rincon. So you're you're very, very old world influenced. Very much so. And I like to champion the idea that it's really the vineyard that is having the single greatest impact on the flavor of these Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Such a good point. Anyway, we are talking to Brian Talley. We're out at Talley Vineyards right now in California, Central Coast. Uh, looking out over the Rincon Vineyard. And that's uh, exactly where this uh, Chardonnay came from. All right, we're going to change gears here, Brian, because there's something that I really wanted to talk about. Very serious subject. You could not make these lovely wines were it not for the people who work out in these fields. And there's a lot of I hate to use the word, but there's some fear out there right now. A lot of concern because nobody's quite sure what's going to happen over the coming months. What do you see happening right now? What are your concerns? And can you just give me a barometer reading of what's going on right now in the farming world? Well, one point I'd like to make, first of all, is that what we do here, whether it's make wine or grow vegetables, the underpinning of that are are folks from Mexico, very hardworking people, many of whom have been here for a long time. They do all of the work that makes this produce and, and these world-class wines possible. All of these wines are tended by hand and harvested by hand. So they're really the underpinning of, of our industry. And I know that they are very concerned concerned about uh, some of the comments that have been made and some of the policy changes that may be coming down the road. So is this something that they actually talk to you about? Not so much. I think that people just are avoiding the topic right now. But for a farmer, I would imagine this is a real serious fear, is it not? In the groups that you hang out in, you know, sort of industry groups, is there much dialogue going on right now about where this is all going? There is. And there's consensus among farmers what we would really like to see is a, is a very workable guest worker program. Our sense is that folks from Mexico ideally would like to be here during the busy season when there's lots of work to do. And especially the younger men would like to leave their families in Mexico and return to them during the off season. And I think that there's an opportunity to create a workable guest worker program. I've got to imagine that this is something that we really have to pay some attention to absolutely right now. There was a story that I read recently about the Trump vineyards and the fact that they had applied for a number of guest workers. How does that work exactly when you want to have guest workers come work for you? What's the process? Well, it's actually, as it stands right now, it's called H-2A. It's the H-2A visa, and it's a very cumbersome project. We actually have employed it in our vegetable farm, and there's a lot of bureaucracy associated with it. It's very expensive because we assume the entire cost of housing and feeding and transporting folks 
folks while they're here, and it puts a pretty big burden on the farmer. I think that there is a simpler and more of a, I guess, a free market approach to attracting a lot of folks from Mexico who would be very interested in working here in the United States without quite such a cumbersome program. It's always been interesting to me that we don't have more people who are raised here in this country who grew up here, were born here, that want to go out and work in the fields. I did it as a kid, and it's always astounding to me that you know we can't find local labor. Well, and that, that is a challenge, and it's not just here in the United States. I mean, it's really all over the industrialized world. It's, it's pretty much the pattern now that the most advanced countries, if they still even have any agriculture, they're importing workers to do it. People just kind of look down their noses, I think, at folks that perform farm labor. You know, the other point I would make is that people have gotten very used to cheap food in the United States. And folks wouldn't have to pay much more for food to allow us to pay people more to do this work. And we might actually start attracting uh, more native-born folk. We need to come up with a system that eliminates the incentive for people to break the law. That's fundamentally what's going on. The other thing is is that in my experience with, and I've worked in, in this business my whole life, I've known some of these folks for 35 or 40 years, they're here to work and they're paying taxes here, uh, they're paying into our social security system, and in a lot of cases they're leaving before they take anything out of social security. Exactly, they're, they're paying in, but they're not receiving anything back. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I think it's something that needs to be top of mind right now because this affects every single one of us. And we're not just talking about wine, but we're talking about food. Well, and and that's a very important point because this is about food security. And I, I think that that's something that people kind of take for granted. You know, we are blessed in, in California with the opportunity to basically grow our own food. And we don't want to give that up. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, a great pleasure to be here with you, Brian. I've had such a good time. I got myself a cookbook. I have three bottles of wine that I've been tasting here, and I'm just going to give them a little plug. Elevation, which is a gorgeous Bordeaux blend. Yes, from the Santa Margarita Vineyard. And then the East Rincon Pinot Noir, absolutely delicious. And that's coming from a guy who doesn't like Pinot. So that's really great. Well, I'm glad we converted you today, I'm I'm, I'm converted. Hallelujah! Anyway, and then uh, the Chardonnay, which I thought was just absolutely just gorgeous. And this is coming from your Rincon Vineyard. That is a beautiful wine. Just Just a nice little hint of new French oak. Right. And nice citrus flavors that keep it all fresh and very refreshing. All right. So I'm going to end it with this. Brian Talley, you are an awesome guy. You make beautiful wines and you make beautiful decisions that I think really favor the way that we live in the U.S. You're just an awesome business person. And I just really appreciate you. And thank you for being on. And thanks for the cookbook. Absolutely, David. Thanks for having me. You can go to TalleyVineyards.com. Go there. Buy the wine buy the cookbook. It's just the chili Riano recipe by itself is worth the price of the book. And that's all I can say. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. their wits the wise beguile. Make the sage frolic and the serious smile. Guiding us through our own odyssey of wine is Sunset Magazine's Sarah Schneider. 
This is Sipping with Sarah on Grape Encounters Radio. In the studio now, the lovely Sarah Schneider. Today we're going to talk about a subject near and dear to my heart. I'll let you introduce it. Wines by the glass in restaurants. And how it's changed. There have been a couple of real game changers in the past few years. There have been wines by the glass on most restaurant lists for a very long time. But it has been a crapshoot, really, as to how good those wines are. Especially Good, good, good meaning two things. Right. The quality of the wine in general and the condition of the wine. And the condition of the wine. How sound is it? Yeah. And that, that's because they are poured from bottles and you you want a kind of rare wine that they have put by the glass. You might have been the only one to order a glass in the last three days. And that bottle was open three days ago. And the staff really doesn't want to pour out two thirds of a bottle. And so they serve it anyway. And the wine is oxidized. And I have friends working in the industry who have told me that that is way, way, way too often the case. I would say that, honestly, and I mean this sincerely, two out of three glasses of wine are tainted in some way that I have in the past ordered by the glass. The first thing that you want to do when you're in a restaurant is find out how often they're uncorking those bottles because chances are the more obscure the wine is that you order by the glass, the greater the chance that that wine has been in the bottle, maybe even two weeks. It Mm, happens. Yikes. And not everybody throws the wine away. And even if they're using some kind of a preservation system like a vacuum vin or they're spraying argon gas like private preserve into the bottle, it still is only going to give that wine, if it's a red wine especially, three days is going to be max. And anything beyond that, the wine's done. So if you were in a high volume restaurant with lots of wine coming out to tables, you're better off. Yeah. If it's a small restaurant that's not selling a lot of wine, that wine is going to be in bad shape. But here's the good news. The good news is, is that when you get a tainted glass of wine and it's clearly turned and you send it back, they now have to open another bottle and you're going to get a fresh glass of wine from the bottle and you should not be afraid to send the wine back. So how would you Um, describe oxidation so that people know when they're tasting something that's tainted? It's wine on its way to turning into vinegar. But wine can't turn to vinegar on its own. It needs vinegar mother. That is true. It just turns to a really badly oxidized product. Yeah. It's doing, it's going through the same process. It's going through the same process, but it won't turn into a tasty tasty thing. Don't save it and try to put it on your salad later. Because you need the the vinegar mother for that to happen. Okay, so the solutions you were going to talk about. And that is the practice of wineries kegging their wine. That is sending it to a company like Free Flow Wines in Napa that puts it into stainless steel kegs and distributes it to restaurants to serve on tap. So wines on tap, I'm telling you, in much of the western part of the country and, and even the east coast, there's almost no new restaurant that opens that doesn't have a number of taps devoted to wine. And it allows them to pull a glass of wine, like you'd pull a beer, um, and some gas shoots in to cover the surface of that wine in the keg to keep so are the they oxygen using argon out. or nitrogen? Or what are they using? I think many of them are using argon. Yeah. Being, yeah. being the preferred gas, right. for sure. Yeah. Right. And if it's a wine that's meant to be drunk when it's fairly young and fresh, red or white, you will get a very sound, fresh glass of wine. And I am so for it. And, and by the way, if you are ordering wines that are served from a keg or even wines that are boxed these days. So many of the really good wineries are doing this. Oh, they are. So just yeah. because it's on tap does not mean at all that it is a low quality wine. Ab- 
absolutely not. Even it's I, just I, the opposite. Actually, I know that true. you're based on the central California coast. There are a ton of wineries all around you that are kegging, are just beautiful examples. Like Tablas Creek um, in Paso Robles is kegging a lot of their wines. Tangent down in Edna Valley with all of their alternative whites. You'll find their Albarino on tap, their Grenache Blanc. Another thing that's very interesting about all of this is that when a winery doesn't have to pay for bottling, labeling, corking, they're actually able to sell that wine for a lot less money, which means that a glass of wine is going to cost a lot less money if it's coming out of a keg than if it's coming out of a bottle. And the other side that that warms my heart is that the carbon footprint of that wine just plummets. It's a fraction of what it would be if it got sent out in a bottle with all of that glass being shipped and having to be recycled or not. It's really environmentally sound way to drink your wine. Okay, so there are a couple of other things that are game changers as well. And the most important, I think, these days is the Coravin. I would agree with you there. They, you know, we mm-hmm. advertise Coravin on this show, but not because of any other reason except that I really believe in this product. Everybody ought to have one. And every restaurant for sure should have one. Right. Because and many do. You, you don't have to throw away wine anymore. And what's really cool about it is that you are now able to sell really high-end wine by the glass. And a lot of people don't want to spend $150 to buy a bottle of wine because they don't want to take that risk. But for $25 for a glass of that wine, it's pure pleasure for them. And they get to try it without putting a bunch of money out there. Right. Even though that's a hefty price for a glass of wine, but it could be just a terrific discovery. So if you see some fairly expensive wines being served by the glass, you can probably know that they've got a Coravan back there, the the device that sticks a needle through the cork without pulling the cork and, and pulls off a glass of wine, preserving the rest of the bottle. And you might just ask them. Yeah, I think that's a very important question. If you are in a place that is selling pricey wine by the glass, you need to know whether they're using some sort of an argon based or nitrogen based system, which is either going to be a Coravin um, or something like an Enomatic, which is basically a, I guess we could call it a machine that dispenses wine from the bottles. And usually they hold like eight bottles and they add argon to the bottle as they subtract the wine from the bottle. And so the wine stays pretty pristine, but the machines are very expensive. I think they're something close to $20,000. Yikes. So a lot of places don't have them yet. And sooner or later, I think there'll be a probably uh, less expensive version. But I have two of them. Oh. Yes. And at your wine bar. Yes, we do. And they, Good to and know. I've never had to throw a drop of wine away that has been poured out of an Enomatic. Good to know. So we have that and the Corbin. So just ask. If you're going to spend anything more than a few dollars for a glass of wine, you have every right to ask how the wine is kept and preserved because if all they're doing is just shoving the cork back in it, the wine is going to be tainted, probably. And if it is tainted, you should have no reservations about sending it back. Do it, and then they'll open a fresh bottle, and you're the winner. All right, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters with David Wilson and, of course, Sarah Schneider from Sunset Magazine. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 